Yeah. Yeah. I know it's such a pastor thing to really like that scene. Right? Did you hear what he said? There's only one God, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Amen? Yeah. In fact, I wanted to show another scene. It was perhaps a little too violent uh, for a Sunday morning, but it's where Loki, who's also considered you psalm, is kind of like a, a god, uh, considered a god, a god, and the Hulk grabs him by the, you know what I'm talking, and he slams him around, which is probably two, and then uh, he leaves Loki, like crushed in the ground, and anyone remember what he says, you Marvel fans? Puny God. What kind of God is like that? Puny God, yes. Now, why did I show that starting the Gospel of John? Because I wanted to have us think a little bit about the world in which John was writing in. That there were really these profound influences. It's, it's believed that John is the final gospel that was written. And he probably knew about the, what's called the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. The other three. They were probably circulating around the church. And they were sharing that. And he was aware of that. And yet maybe somewhere around 85 AD, 90 AD. John, perhaps he, he felt profoundly led by the Spirit that he, maybe even the remaining apostle, the one left, all the others had been martyred, that he felt led to give his own reflections on the life of Christ. In fact, over 90%, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have tons of crossover and tons of story, and they tell the story of Christ. But in John, there's over 90% of the material in John that isn't in the other three Gospels. It's amazing. And in fact, John is an intriguing book because it's known as the Gospel with the most theological reflection. That, that many, Luke and Mark and, and Matthew were telling and, and their, their gospels of action and Jesus did this and Jesus said this and he healed this person and so forth and so on. And yet John can see there's this beautiful reflection, theological reflection. And he goes, oh, this story that the church needs to know and I want to tell it so that they might not only know the story, but, but sit with that story and ask, how does this story of Jesus, how does this claim of Jesus impact my life? John was writing in the midst of uh, Roman culture and, or a Gentile culture and a Greek culture. And in Roman and Greek culture, there were many puny gods. They didn't call them puny gods, right? Uh, well, if Hulk were alive at that time, he probably would have called them puny gods. But, yeah, they were, so he's in this, in this really 
a polytheistic environment where some of the people that were, were uh, hearing the message of Christ Jesus would have come from a background of worshiping and believing in many gods. That's one context. Another context was a very profoundly Jewish context where they didn't believe in many puny gods. They believed in one great God who was creator of all things. In fact, they believed that there were no other creators, no other gods, whether puny or big, that there was only one and he created all things. And John is speaking into this particular context and and sharing. I like to think that John was sometime elderly, sitting under a tree and saying, Jesus, how? How can I share about you? How can I tell about you? And I wonder if he heard these words. We'll start from the beginning and tell him who I really am. And so John writes, in the beginning, God bless you, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made. That has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not John the author. He's talking about John the Baptist who would come. He came as a witness testifying concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. It's interesting that the purpose of John is the same purpose of the book, of this gospel that we'll read at the very end, at the end of Uh, The year, most likely, did you catch John's purpose? He came so that all might believe. This gospel is written that you might really believe, really know who Christ is and the difference he wants to make in your life. Verse 9. Was I at verse 9? Yes. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own but his own did not 
receive him. We're going to pause right there. If you've got your Bibles, just keep your, your open. Just keep your, your finger there. Just want to make a few observations of what John is doing. He uses this interesting Greek word of logos. Look at your neighbor and say logos. Logos. A really interesting Greek word. That that would have significance to all of the Gentiles, the Romans and the Greeks that would have been reading this uh, up front. In, in Greek philosophy, there was this idea that there was a principle of reason that governed all the world. And that principle of reason, they would often use this Greek word to describe this principle of logos, that reason that he, he, that logos, it was an impersonal principle of reason, but it provided order to the world and it governed the world. So those Greek deep thinkers, if they would have been reading this for the first time and heard, oh, logos, is this a, is this a tome on philosophy? Is he one of us? Is he sharing this idea of this principle of reason that governs the world? Oh, oh, this is interesting. I wonder what he's going to say and where he's going to go with this. Logos. Now, Logos also speaks to the other culture that we talked about, and that is Jewish thought. That there was this very developed idea of the word of God, translated word of God in Jewish thought. And one, Jewish thought, God, the word was also, was the law of God. It's how he uh, taught what he, and you could say how he governed his people. That he spoke the law into existence. Also, the word of God was significant because of the prophets. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, it says the word of God came to the prophets. That this word, God's word, so filled the prophets like Jeremiah, like Isaiah. In fact, uh, Jeremiah would say the word is, it's like a burning in my bones. In fact, sometimes Jeremiah didn't want to share it because it made him unpopular, right? And yet, it's this word of God that was burning in his bones and he just had to share it. John is saying that that same word that filled the mouths of the prophets, the, the same word that was the, the foundation of the law and the covenant and the revelation of God. This is who I'm talking about. And then one final piece where Paul is re, uh, John is really going to weigh in is that in Jewish thought, they understood the word for its creative power. That God, this is how the God of the universe, the one true living God, created all things and all people. He 
spoke everything into existence. For example, right, right away, Genesis 1-3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God said. God spoke. And from God, this creative power, came and, and, and shaped and moved this earth that was, uh, was dark and formless from the beginning. And so by using this one Greek word of logos, it packs a punch right away to almost all of John's readers. They're going, what? oh, The word of God, we're reflecting. Now, what John does, I would say, in his brilliance, in in leading, um, in uh, being led by the Spirit, what he's doing, especially for his Jewish audience, by saying, in the beginning, what is he doing? He's bringing them back to the beginning of scripture. And what's at the very beginning? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, well, God was there. In the beginning, would you think about this, the existence of God. And, and what he does right away is he says, Logos was both with God, distinct from God, and was God. Now God is one, right? So the introduction of the discussion of the Trinity, right? But he says, the, but in the beginning, like before, if you go back before the earth had any life in it, the Logos was there. He was with God. And he was God. Do you remember what the earth was like at the beginning. It was just darkness. It was formless. It had no shape, no order, no life. You could say there was a a chaos there. And in fact, you get a picture of the Trinity in the opening verses of Genesis. You can go back and read the opening verses of Genesis, maybe sometime today, and you can see the Spirit of God is is hovering over the formless earth, right? And it's dark, and it's shapeless, and, and the Holy Spirit there is. God the Father is there. And then what God does, what does God do? He speaks the word. And he brings life and light. In fact, his first first act was to bring light and life. Two words that are going to be really important to John. Light and life. And just by way of introduction to this book, I want to uh, let you in on some Uh, on on some techniques you could say that John uses to bring a depth 
to our thinking and our experience of God. The first one is contrast, that he uses contrast throughout his 21 chapters. And what does light contrast with? He's trying to say something about the darkness of the world, about the darkness of humankind, about the darkness without us, him, in our lives. Verse 5, look again. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In Genesis, there was this this, uh, darkness, dark mass of the world, and God speaks light into that. I want to suggest to you that just as Jesus was there at the beginning and he was speaking life, God was speaking life, and, and that life was in Christ Jesus. So today, God wants to speak life into your life. Whatever darkness is in our soul, is in our thinking, is in our relationships, and I would suggest in the world today, which there's a lot of darkness in the world, that through Christ, he want to, wants to bring life to all things that are dead. And he's doing it just as profoundly, just today as way back then. Now life, he uses a, a different technique where he uses layers. Some have... Uh, have likened it to a funnel where that if you stay with a particular thing or story or word or concept in John, that that there's a a surface level understanding. But then in John's spirit-led brilliance, it, it starts to funnel down and you go, Oh, and in fact, we're, we're with the people in the story sometimes, like, like Nicodemus in, in John 3, when Jesus says, you must be born again, and he says, how do you enter your mother's womb? And then as you stay with it, you go, oh, he's talking about a new life, a, a spiritual life. In fact, He's going to use this idea of life, God speaking light and life into us 36 times in the book of John. He's going to say, listen, I want you to understand that the ministry of Christ, the word of God, is light and life. He was doing it back in Genesis, and now he's doing it again. He's going to get in. This is called the prologue. Some would call it a a poem. And right away, he's not only going to talk about the significance of Christ, 
But right away, he's going to talk about the difference he wants to make in your life. And let's pick up and read the rest of this poem or prologue. And I want you to pay attention to the impact that this is meant to have, this reality. Now, think back for a moment about the, the Greek philosophers that are thinking of this impersonal <coughs> principle of reason and the Jewish thinkers that are thinking about the one God, that they would recognize the one God has the word and the word is creative, the word is the law, the word is in the mouths of the prophet because he's going to say something really dramatic in verse 14, but we'll pick it up in verse 12. Yet to any, any, yet to all who did receive him, he just got done saying that in the darkness of the world, though everything and all things were created by the word, by the logos, there's a profound rejection that happens. The God of the universe allows people to reject his word. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This goes back to the story of, of Nicodemus, where he's going to say, really, the significance of this is a new life altogether. It's not just a, a changing your life for the better. It's not just a, a New Year's resolution that you say, you know what, I'd be a lot healthier if I went to the gym on a regular basis. No, that the, the work of God is going to be so transformational. It's going to be a brand new life. He'll say later, John 10.10, 10, Jesus will say about himself, I came, you, came to give you an abundance of life, a fullness of life that makes all other lives you're living puny in comparison. All right? There, there's a cultural phrase, uh, maybe you guys will recognize it, live your best life. Yeah? Do you ever use that? Or you, you don't know which way I'm going to go with that, do you? Yeah? It, it's fine. Right? Live your best life. Right? Is that a good thing to live your best life? I can actually get behind that cultural perspective. Yeah. Live your best life. Who defines what your best life is? That's the key issue. Yeah. We usually say us, right? Yeah. 
I want to suggest that if you are at the center of your own life, you're a puny God. You're a puny God. If you're calling the shots for what an abundant life means, of the life that you're living, no, 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 you've got the wrong person at the center of your life. And you're puny. Anyone else, whether it's Thor or Loki or you, you're a puny God. And if you have a puny God at your life, at the center of your life, you're going to live a puny life. He wants to be the center. He wants to teach you what your best life is. He wants to teach you what abundant life is. A life filled with the life and light of God. Only Jesus can do it. Filled with his revelation and his truth. Filled with his love. Filled with even sacrifice and hardship. Because that's part of the abundant life. That's what it means to be a child of God, a son or daughter of God. Our culture would say, well, we're all, we're all children of God. Maybe you hear that, right? What John is saying is, no, 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 uh-uh. We're, we're all broken. We're, we're part of the darkness. The first thing that Jesus does when he shines light in your life is he adopts you and he moves you from darkness to light. You go from lost orphan to sons and daughters of the one true living God. And that's the foundation. That's true life. That's abundant life. Okay. Go back to this idea of the word, of the, of the uh, principle of reason that governs all life. Go back to the word of God being spoken in Genesis. All of that. And then verse 14 comes. The word, the divine principle, the revelation of God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He utilizes some other Greek words that I think are really interesting here. He says the word logos became flesh. That word is, is sarks. It's a, it's a gritty word. It's an it's a earthy word. It's a, sometimes flesh is known as you're living from your flesh. You're living in your sin and your grossness, right? It's this gritty word, and all of a sudden, logos takes on flesh. He gets his hands right in the muck and the mire of this broken world. This 
divine principle that, that governs the universe, according to Greek, Greek philosophy. This, this word of God, this revelation according to the prophets and, and the law of God, the law of God, the revelation of God, he becomes flesh. He takes on our, our grittiness, our brokenness, our pain, all of a sudden, the very word of God is found in this little manger and needs his diapers changed. What? What in the world? This, this eternal, divine presence becomes a, a, a fragile element in creation. The, the creator of the world, the, the one that spoke, that was, that was nothing came into creation except through Christ. This divine word is encapsulated in in this little, tiny body, the creator enters creation. Eternity enters time and space. What in the world? What is happening? You've got your highlighter. I would highlight verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling. Also, just one, uh, the, the Greek word there is kind of a fun one, skinu. It's fun to say. Look at your neighbor and say skinu. Skinu. And that means dwelling or tabernacled. Tabernacled. It's related to that. I'll say just a word about that, is that not only is John pointing back to Genesis, do you know there's another book that he's pointing back to in the Old Testament? Anyone know? Exodus. Why Exodus? Because this Greek word of skinu, he's saying, you remember when they were in the desert and they had the tent of meetings and the tent of meetings represented the creator, the presence of the living God in the midst of his people. It's, it, it was right there that you could actually look up, the Jews could look up and see the presence of God in their midst. He's saying God himself, as Eugene Peterson puts it, moved into the neighborhood. He tabernacled. Except this time, not a pillar of cloud and fire, this time it's flesh, sarks, it's baby, it's the God of the universe looks like you and me. In fact, John would say this, 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, he would say, that which was from the beginning, 
uses some repetition here. This is his epistle, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at our hands, have touched. He's saying, I'm going to tell you again, the divine presence, the God of the universe, we touched him. I I held his hand. I leaned my head, John specifically, against his chest. I could see his mouth move while he spoke. The God of the universe, I slept next to him a couple of times. All right, let's finish this or we're going to be here forever. Now, I want you to pay attention. New life, there's a repetition, one of John's techniques that I want you to pay attention to. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John, John the Baptist, testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me out of his fullness. We have all received grace in place of grace. Grace upon grace. Grace stacked upon grace. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law, a little bit of contrast, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, at least not in his fullness. Otherwise they would die, according to the Old Testament. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, just in case we missed it in the opening verses of the prologue, he names him as God again, who is himself God, and in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Okay, in the remaining few moments that we have, there were two words that I love that are near and dear to my heart that he describes Jesus as. In fact, we were in uh, discipleship. Jesse and JT, you know where I'm going, right? So I'm not going to ask you. They know the answers already. But I asked them, I said, if you had just, if you could describe Jesus in just two words, what would those two words be? Yes. Ave knows the answer as well. Probably many of you do, because I, I, I love these words. What's those? Say it really loud, Ave. Grace and truth. I've found that so significant that, that John, spirit-led, he had two words that he describes Jesus that really encapsulate all that Jesus is, the, the divine logos entering the world, and he says this is what he was like. Full of grace and truth. 
And in fact, there's an invitation here, I believe, that's so profound that he's going to invite you and I to not just recognize the true identity of Jesus Christ, not just fall on our knees and worship him as the divine logos who took on flesh, but also to recognize as we read and meditate and study the gospel of John, recognize and see the grace of God flowing from his life, see the truth and revelation of God flowing from his life, and reflect his grace and his truth. Real quickly, the, the grace of God, interesting, that Greek word charis, he, he's not going to use that word again in the gospel, which is interesting. But really that, that word encapsulates many words from the Old Testament, which is really the loving kindness of God, or some would translate it as the steadfast love of God. All of God's blessing and favor and goodness and mercy and kindness. There's elements in that word charis, the grace of God, or you could say the steadfast love of God. Guess what book in the New Testament uses the word or words described as love more than any other book in the New Testament? It, that was an easy one, right? No cup of coffee for you. Yes, John. Guess which uh, book is set, uses it second most in the New Testament? John's epistle, first John, yes. He, he has a theme, a, a repetition. He keeps returning again and again to the love of God. And we're going to recognize and see that Jesus is the expression of God's grace to this broken world. You know John 3.16. For he so, what did he do? He sent the divine principle that governs all the universe. He sent the creative agent out of love for you and I, Charis. We talked about abundant life being true life. This is true love. Our culture has many definitions of what true love is, doesn't it? And Jesus is going to say, I am the very love of the universe, the love of the heart of your creator is Christ Jesus. And he's going to want us to reflect that love to everyone else. And, and incredibly, we're going to see in John, he, he's going to say this in John 15, as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. This is a, a deeper point, but we're just going to unpack it as we walk through John. What he's saying there is this, 
in the love that Jesus has with the Father, this love here, he shares with you. He invites you into the very love that the divine trinity has together with you. And then finally, truth. The definitive truth. This doesn't really work, but I'm going to say it. Maybe it'll be remembered. True life, true love, and true truth. Say true truth. True truth. And I say that because I think of another cultural phrase. In fact, I just had young adults saying this to me. Well, that's your truth. What do you think about that phrase? <sighs> I don't like it. I don't like it. Now, I get it. They're trying to empower people, speak your truth, so forth and so on, yada, yada. Here's the problem with it. Jesus comes, and we're going to read later in John. He says, I am but one truth in the universe. He doesn't say that, does he? What's he say? I am the way and the truth and the life. His truth defines what truth is. His, his revelation, there is, a, there is a truth at the center of the universe which is God and the creator and he's come and to see him and to recognize and to take him in is to allow the truth of the universe to shape our truth. And my friends, that's going to make all the difference in the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, listen now, if you know Jesus, you know the truth that is at the center of the universe you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And by the end of the book, he's going to refer to his Father and your Father. This is this incredible and beautiful invitation and he's really seeking to explode or expand our view of Jesus today. He's going to unpack it, beginning with the logos that is eternal and that is divine and that logos taking on the gritty flesh of our world, tabernacling among us, giving us brand new life, 
abundant life that's flowing with God's goodness and grace, flowing with God's revelation and truth. I want to invite Jedediah forward. And again, we're going to, uh, I'm going to dismiss you and give you the, the benediction. And if you have kids in the children's ministry, would you, that be the first thing that you do? Would you grab your kids and then bring them down and talk with people and fellowship in the atrium? I'm going to ask the uh, prayer leaders, Veda and others, that they'll just be in these corners. If there's a way that you want to pray with them, then would you go to those corners? Would you pray with me and let's just listen for a moment? So Lord, we're, we're asking, we're, we're starting this series that you would teach us about who you are. That we might fall in love with you all over again, Jesus. Lord, would you forgive us, Jesus, if we have looked at you and thought of you as a puny God. Would you forgive us, Lord, if if we have had anyone at the center of our lives, including us. And Lord, we recognize that you and you alone deserve that rightful place. Teach us about who you are, Jesus. And teach us about who you've called us to be. To live abundant life true life, true love, true revelation. Can we stand together for the benediction? Would you carry the word of God with you? Maybe you reread the prologue. Maybe you memorize a verse like verse 14. Maybe you just try and pray through something that struck you. Maybe now you want to go to the prayer team and say, boy, I recognize I've had some puny gods in my life and I want to reject them and invite Christ there. Would you go Seeking the abundant life. Yes, your best life, but according to Jesus, the abundant life of Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.